0: what's that movie with eddie murphy and dad ackroyd where they get switched places it was some bad trading places trading places i think you're thinking of beverly hills cop no 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 no. no. Hmm. trading places where you know feeling
1: good lewis looking good lewis something there's some line at the end where they whatever Mm
0: -hmm. the moment's gone
1: that's the one where he where eddie murphy is like driving somebody's brain around or
2: they live inside eddie murphy's head I feel like Christian's <laughs> being disrespectful to one of, like, the great all-time classic It really is movies. a classic comedy. I mean, yeah. it really... Trading Places is really a
1: terrific movie. <laughs> right. It's got Jamie Lee Curtis. It's the one where Eddie Murphy dresses up like a grandmother. Correct. It's yeah. got Don Amici. Uh-huh. I mean, it's got these great people. I, that's Cannonball Run you're talking about, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely. With okay. Burt Reynolds. Um, that's a classic, too. If we... Are we started? I don't know. You, well, you usually lie about that. You, right. Um, I, that's true. I do. Uh should we tell people where they can find the show? Sure, uh, although I don't know. So this would be good for me too. Yeah. Well, you can find it, it on iTunes, you right? You can find it in the place that you just downloaded it from. But if you want, <laughs> to, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, how, how do people get in touch with this show? Oh, well, they can
0: send us uh, an email at our, our Gmail address, which is oralargumentpodcast at
1: gmail.com. Yeah. Couldn't be easier. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. And they should rate us on iTunes. <coughs> they should. Mm-hmm. And when you rate, you can also leave some comments. But you don't have to. You don't have to, but you yeah. can. Do that. That 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 helps people find We'd us. We'd love to get reader mail. Mm-hmm. Send us reader mail. Yeah, and we'll read all complaints. Uh, yes. Yeah, okay. And um, what are you doing, Logan? What's up? Who is this? Logan Sawyer. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here. He teaches with us. He does. I, we're not even recording right now. This is the lying part. This is... <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> what do you think of that coffee coffee's great yeah this I'm is ready i got my caffeine I'm all of our ready. all of our guests
1: get
0: uh free coffee did you hear how much coffee tim meyer drinks frightening ha- have you heard the tim meyer podcast episode no i have not you can hear it uh, if you'd like what you will learn is that he drinks a scandalously large amount of coffee inhumanly large and he's a large human but still <laughs> it's inhumanly large by large, I mean tall, Tim. It's okay. I'm the one who's large horizontally. Oh, but, man. But um, Tim drinks an, 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 a frightening amount of coffee. So what constitutes
1: frightening? Like pots. I think 10 cups a day is what he estimated. Yeah. Not crazy. That's a lot. It's dangerous. Even for a guy who drinks a lot of coffee. I think it's, I think it's dangerous. I, I think we should stage an intervention. I
0: mean, I could do that if I were very carefully counteracting it with booze. I mean, I think I could work out a you know coffee and whiskey situation that would that would be manageable. <laughs> I'm guessing I haven't tried it. I'm just you know I'm supposing. Right, right. Um,
1: but boy, just ten. You got to manage your whole like uh, pharmaceutical cabinetry to around sure. like uppers sure. and downers and. And that could out. you now, could now, kids need kids don't do drugs. You though. could need pain don't reliever drugs, for kids. that. No, of course not. No, but
0: you'd need pain reliever. You'd need lots of water too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that would be it's you know it would be tough. tricky. Yeah. Um,
2: but I think I could do it. Yeah. I have I have thought it for a long time that uh, caffeine is a performance-enhancing drug for academics. It Which might explain part of why Tim is so productive. Mm-hmm. It might.
0: And why, well, yeah. I should be more productive
1: then. Well.
0: <laughs> you dis- Maybe we've got the key. We just
1: all need to drink more coffee. <laughs> Joe dissipates his caffeine energy, I guess, in other ways. Yeah. Like, caring for his dogs. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now, now, uh, Logan joins us today as a. I I, you're a professional historian, is that right? You you are. Yeah, that's
2: that's. I got like I got all the degrees to prove it. and everything. Yeah, you
1: you are. uh, I
2: really should call you Doctor Sawyer. Do you get uh, Do you get upset when I about Doc Sawyer? Uh, I uh, how about just Doc? I got accidentally called doctor today at a doctor's appointment, actually. Wow. Uh, and uh, they apologized, and I said, no, no, that's, that's quite it's- okay. I, <laughs> am, I, am, I am actually a doctor, right. not the useful kind, but uh, right. I enjoy getting called a doctor every once in a while. No, if there's
1: some okay. kind of history emergency. like <laughs> in I'm ready. Of, Like in one of those Nick Cage uh, movies, you know, where right. it's like bounding around in the archives and guys with guns are coming after
2: him like you know you you never know you come in handy and somebody suddenly needs someone to do archival so, research right i can i can fill that yeah right, right. quickly yeah. too yeah. exactly quickly <laughs> i mean very very
1: quickly so uh, but but you you have a phd in history and 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 basically
2: you're bringing the history thunder to law is that right is that <laughs> i am uh, one of a uh, growing cohort of uh, historians um, in law schools and other places who are bringing the history thunder to the law that yeah, right? that's right all right and and um so what does that mean to you what does it what does it
1: mean to do history well let me say this so so at you in one way you were like at the uh you're you're at the convergence of two kind of popular movements uh, among lay people i will say right so um so no one fancies themselves like a math buff right who hasn't like had some math training in the way i mean maybe there's some i don't maybe or like like I'm an amateur anthropology buff. I mean, it happens. It's right. a little bit, but it sounds I'm, more like a sitcom character. Though. If you go on Matt Twitter, though, if or... you go on Twitter, right, and people have opinions about things, people will say, "Well, I'm kind of a history buff, right? I'm a little bit of a history buff. I, I kind of know a lot right. of history, especially when a comes, law buff too. Especially when it comes to the founding fathers and the history of, say, the war right. between the states, as they yep. say, right? People are just buffs about this. Also, law, like you say, yeah, yeah. law. Like uh, I've read the Constitution." So I am a I am a law buff. And so there's a certain category of person who's both a history buff and a law buff. They tend to use a lot of hashtags on Twitter. They tend to uh, have a lot of opinions. Um, they know a lot. They talk a lot at family dinners. But see, the, here's the thing. They Log- probably they probably have called C-SPAN more than once. <laughs> <laughs> I think that may be the case. I think that's right. Um, Logan, though, is... Um, is no, you you are a certified
2: history buff and law buff, so uh, and you're uh, double-barreled. <laughs> I will say, uh, a friend of mine in uh, graduate school. Which um, is a grueling, in many ways, a wonderful experience, but in many ways, like a grueling and difficult experience. And you're trying to become a professional historian, and you're working really hard. Uh, his mother, all the time he was a graduate student, when he came home, and she would say, "This is my son Scott. He's a history buff." And, <laughs> and he, he did not, he did not fully appreciate that. So I, I think for this, for similar reasons, I think I would reject the history and law buff uh, title. But I am a historian, and. Um, Primarily, and that's why I think about my work. But actually,
1: you know, there is something a little. There's something more here than just uh, kind of you know me being a goofball, Uh, and that is you do. These are two fields in which you actually get lay people who um, I I imagine will argue with you about this. So you know, when I was in math, I did you know I didn't like go to a family dinner and have an uncle come up and say, you know what they're saying about Banach spaces. You know, that's not... Uh, I've got my own theory about that stuff, right? They, what what or, is going on with Vinox uh, Oh, man. They're, they're complete, man. They're complete as hell. Uh. uh anyway. um. What about that asshole Euler? <laughs> you're just is that to, how his name is pronounced? You're just
0: trying to make me bleep stuff out. Euler? Yeah, Euler. Yeah, Euler's number theory crap or some yeah. such nonsense? Yeah. That's
1: crazy talk. That's well, what that is. Yeah. Well, go talk to Lipschitz. Okay, so anyway, (laughs) but what I'm saying is that you never get someone, you know, it it didn't happen where people tried to get all up in your business about how they knew the real deal about, uh, you know, functional analysis or something. But if you are a professional historian or a professional lawyer, you know, uh, especially like of the con law variety, I imagine you get a lot of that stuff, right? So uh, one thing I kind of wanted to figure out with you is how do you see history fitting into law? Uh, And how does that address, I mean, how does that differ maybe from... I don't know, how, how maybe your amateur historian buffs and law buffs on Twitter might think about that same question. Can I ask it in a different way? Uh, please do, because that way sucked.
0: No, that was a good way, but yeah. here's okay. another no, I got lots of answers. Here's another yeah. way. to. I imagine that Logan, sometimes when he's reading something, thinks to himself, I can tell from the way this is being said that this person doesn't look at history and law's relationship to each other the way I do. Just by the way they're talking about it and trying to persuade somebody of something. And I'm maybe I'm wrong about that, but I'd be interested to hear if I'm right and what that stuff looks like when it's stuff he recognizes as not him.
2: There we go. That's my question. Yeah, Excellent. right. So all this comes together. Okay, so uh I'm not a theorist. This is kind of a theory question, actually. You know, so it's a, a theory question about history and it's a theory about how history is different from uh law, and we gotta start I think we have to start here, right? Uh, what I do as a historian is approach problems in a particular way, right? Everybody studies the past, right? Or right, virtually right. everybody, right? Maybe not philosophers, but history buffs, you know, like individual, yeah. they're, they're studying the past. Sure. They can read the documents. They can read the books just like I can. I don't have a comparative advantage there. Um, lawyers study the past, right? They look at old precedent all the time. Sure. Um, sociologists, political scientists, we're all looking at past data. Um, you don know, 't scientists right we 're looking at like what, what happened in the past and trying to come up with an explanation or like a theory that we can use to predict the future and all that yeah. kind of stuff um, what I think about and i don 't know that all historians would think about it this way, but m- maybe they should <laughs> um, right uh, what historians as academics do or history as an academic discipline what it makes what makes it different is that uh it Focuses not on the connections between the past and the future or the past and the present, but on the differences between the past and the present. Right. So whereas political scientists who are probably the closest to historians are doing is they're looking at events that happened in the past and saying, how can we categorize this so we can come up with a theory that will then be applicable to the future. You know, so we can apply this theory in the present and, you know, control the future better. Historians are kind of doing the opposite, right? Uh What we're doing is we're, when we look at an event that happened in the past, we're not looking at how this event is similar to the present. Um, we're looking at how that event is connected to other past events, right? And we're trying to emphasize that there's a separation. There's a difference between the past and the present, right? Huh. So. That's very interesting, because that sounds
0: to me like there would actually be history approached that way. There would actually be a fairly large degree of built intention between that and the way lawyers look at precedent and and try to make arguments about the precedent, because they're very much trying to make not just distinctions from
1: things, but similarities to things. And that's why the most annoying question for you must be. You know, when you're writing some article in history or talking about, you know, we may talk about some of this today, uh, the the events which occurred around the time of maybe, you know, if you were studying the ratification of the 14th Amendment or if you were studying the Lochner era, which we may talk about a little bit more. um, uh, And you create a story about why these things happen, what influences created this, and you're telling the story of that time. And then what do you get? I'm sure almost every job talk of generalists who aren't historians or every uh, uh, academic talk um, how does this relate to the debate over gay marriage today or how do you know how is this what lessons can we learn from this for today and and I hear you saying that um, that the answer to that question is not like where lawyers would want to use as we are prone to do instances of the past kind of like we use cases you know as like pieces of arguments like you see it very differently right history is not like a case it's something different it's something which has an internal structure and logic
2: to it well Okay, I knew what I was going to say and then the last one kind of threw me a little bit. So ignore it though. Let me, yeah, just throw it out. Uh, right, I deeply believe that the work I do and the work other historians do matters today and has important can make important contributions to the debate. But you're entirely right. It makes an important contribution to the debate in ways that um in, in, in ways that most people don't think, don't think it does, right? right. Uh, they want to know the similarity, right? Uh, right. They want to know things were this way in the past, and so therefore they must be this way now. And so, you know, what's this continuity you can show me? And like I mentioned before, what I think history does, and when I'm acting as a historian, which isn't the only thing I do, right? I, like normal people, I look for these continuities. I see them all the time. Sure. But as a historian, what I'm trying to do is break down those connections Um, In order to help people see new possibilities, right? In order to help people see that the world and the way we're approaching and thinking about it today isn't necessarily the way it's always been. And if it hasn't always been that way, then we can then in the future, it can be different. Um, So, I mean, ultimately, (laughs) so this is what I tell my students. And I think there's a lot of truth to it, right? History is not a conservative discipline, right? You think about history as a conservative discipline because you're studying the past and you're studying James Madison and all these guys, and so it feels like it's conservative because you're looking to the past for wisdom or guidance or something like that. And that's the way many people look at the past, but at least to my mind, that's not what I'm doing when I do history. What I'm doing is, is actually something radical, right? It's like it's trying to break down the structures that we use today to think about things um, so that we can imagine new possibilities. I mean, think about, like you mentioned, gay marriage, right? Yeah. So, you know, A lot of the debate on gay marriage starts from this assumption that, well, marriage has always been one man and one woman, and that's what it's always been since time immemorial. And a family is a man and a woman and children, and that's very straightforward, right? So social historians might go back, and I don't know this work well, but they might go back in history and say, look, family units have included lots of different ways of being, even in America, right? So it's always been a man and a woman in America, but… They've been or a man and a, woman and a, woman and been, a woman. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, there's been all these different kinds of things, and so <sighs> they undermine this story that marriage has always been between a man and a woman, and thus it always must be between a man and a woman. And it creates more space for people to then have the kind of normative theoretical debates, right? And
1: that's like other, like other, um, some other academic fields where. What you're doing is you're you're thinking in original ways in order to enlarge the menu of possibilities, whereas when I think of conservatism, like what does that mean? Uh, it's stripped of any kind of political connotation for a second, but because what what is the conservative impulse? It's about continuity with the present. It's about you know um, stitching together a common approach from moment to moment and and avoiding rapid swings right and and you if you look far enough back in history right? And you draw lessons from that. It's not a conservative impulse to want to replicate that or bring back a value which was at play, say, 100 years ago and which has been lost. Like you say, that's a radical impulse because you're, you're, you're looking for a big change, which is justified in part, or maybe some evidence uh, uh, of, of why we should do it exists in the historical record, right? But that, that impulse is not at all a conservative one. I mean that's that's kind of your point right that it is I mean, yeah
2: and that small c conservative kind of way i mean right. as as a you know the technique that i'm talking about that historians can use can be used to support all kinds i mean you know the outcome can support all kinds of different political movements today and those political movements we might label liberal or right. conservative just, or progressive or not. right just to be clear not, but, right. yeah. for people who but, don't yeah. think
1: of it in this way um so you could look back in history at the role of women in 1810 Think about how that worked and, and tell a story about that, which I guess, you know, history talks about—the uh, the history might tell you a, a full story of a society in which women were—had a certain role and were treated in a certain way. And you might use that story as an argument for restricting women's rights today. And that would be conservative in the, like, in the more political sense of the word, as falling at the far end of a, of a left-right spectrum. But we would not at all call that conservative with a small c— right? Because that would be a radical change from the present to take away women's rights, right? So that would be, that's, that's history used in a radical way towards politically conservative ends.
2: Well, maybe.
1: So... No, you're supposed to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, maybe. Oh, pardon me. I think
2: I'm... So we might say that, uh, Take, okay, so I'm not sure that this is going to work exactly, but we might say a conservative might look at the way women were treated in 1800 and say that's a good reason to continue to treat women uh, this way in 1800. A, a progressive, you know, politically might um, look at that and say, well, yeah, you might draw, I mean, so- might say, well, there's less, you know, look at how uh, unhappy those women were then, and so we need to change that because these women were unhappy then. You know, what the historian would,
1: yeah, what would, would the be historian concerned do? Yeah, about yeah. in
2: that sort of circumstance would be would, would not be would be, not be asking the question of what does this lived experience of women in eighteen ten, how is it similar and different from today? Right? They'd be asking the question of what uh, uh, how is that experience connected to other social structures and other ideas and other ways of being at the time, right? right, And once you can see that, at least the, the theory goes, once you can see that, you can kind of say, well, all these other things have changed, so maybe we should treat women the same. Maybe we should treat women... Maybe we should go back, maybe we shouldn't. Right. But that what we shouldn't be held hostage to yeah. is this vision of the past. You know what this reminds right? me of? It reminds me of... Um, I did a really bad job. No, 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 that. no, no, that no, was, no. Not
1: that, because it, you, you've reminded me of um of what it's like to be... A scientist or uh, or a mathematician, and who uh, um, where you want to remind yourself of your role? Like, what what can science do for us? Right, it can tell you the consequences of various human actions. Um, sometimes well, sometimes poorly, sometimes with a good degree of uncertainty. But that's its uh, its biggest hope is that one we learn the story of ourselves in the same way as history, but a different kind of story. But the other is that we can like predict what will happen if we cut greenhouse gas emissions by a certain amount, or what will happen if we, uh, um, you know, cut these kinds of emissions or do this thing, or 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 if we harvest fish at this rate. Like, science can help you answer questions about consequence, right? Uh, it doesn't tell you what you should do, which is inevitably a political task of weighing how you feel about those various consequences. That's a, that's and how a, to trade them off. And how to trade them off, right? But science can give you—but sometimes science can be so conclusive about something and the and and human beings are in such agreement that science seems conclusive, right? So if we had a scientific study that showed that a certain use of a certain chemical would destroy the entire earth in a matter of hours, right? Then we would say, oh, science has told us we shouldn't do that. Not really. Right? What happened is science has told <laughs> us what will happen. And we are all in pretty good agreement that whatever its benefits, it's not worth the cost of destroying the earth in a couple of hours, right? Right. But that's what science does. It provides uh, a sense of uh, of of uh, uh, within zones of uncertainty, facts which allow people to have arguments about which set of facts they want to unfold in the future. And I hear you saying a similar thing about history, right? The historian fills out a fuller and fuller picture of an alien people, These, this this th- an alien people from the past who had a whole bunch of different influences, uh, a whole bunch of different interactions, and a story that unfolded. Uh, and And we can use that. Now, the historian doesn't answer the question of is are there certain aspects of that past, which would be good to replicate now in law or otherwise culturally. Um, But the historian can fill out the picture in such a way that it guides the argument a little bit. So it, you know, so if you, um, or, uh, or unguides it.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah, It, 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 it takes, uh, it tries to take the boundaries of appropriate of what is thought to be appropriate or maybe even necessary debate and say these should actually be wider. Yeah,
1: let me put some meat on these bones a little bit. Right. Um, so uh, let me give you my, my, um, my uh, kind of dumb, dumb thumbnail sketch of let the Lochner era. Or do you, you, you want to do something but, else?
2: Yeah, let me... Okay. I want to do that, but let me at least try something... Try the same argument in a slightly different way. So one way to think about uh, historians and uh, how they think about the world is that they're constantly at war with theorists, right? Mm. We're constantly trying to undermine theory, right? Because a theorist right. will say, "Here, here is a certain structure. Here's a rule. Um, if A happens, then B happens. If we want, yeah. you know, if we want C, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A plus B plus C. So we have to manipulate these different things, right? And so they want to tell a story of continuity, all of the ideal political science theory is, right. from the beginning, the if you do A and B, then you get C, right? Uh, and so, it's
0: straightforward causation.
2: Yeah. It's clear what
0: to do. Then you get this outcome. Every time people have done this,
1: this thing has happened. Right. And
2: so we should. So therefore, if we want these outcomes in the future, we, you know, here's and here's the debate then. Then the debate is over. Do we want C or is doing A and B worth what we're going to get with C or whatever? The historian's job in that kind of debate is to step in and say, if you look carefully at what has happened in the past, one of the things that you'll find is that that theory is wrong. (laughs) right or that theory forgot to account for the fact that there's d or there's some other complicating factor right so it's not always if a and b then c right and right. so then like the historical and then the like normative debate can take place in a wider frame
1: that sounds a lot like science too though right and I'm better informed sure oh, well, so good science is always at war with its own theories right i mean science yeah. is always because every theory we've ever come up with is wrong at least in detail right
2: um, or, or it's right. This is not- a historicist understanding of science, which is not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, uh, and that's how you make a name for yourself in science. You prove the wrongness of everything which has come before. Right. I mean, that's what progress is, yeah, but,
0: but not normal, sci- n- normal, sort of normal phase science is not, I'm going to be deeply skeptical about all the
1: most fundamental things we're doing. Right. No, no. That's why I say in detail, because you know, uh, um, it's only every now and then that someone completely remakes an entire right. science. Right. Um, and when we make a lot of progress just by filling in the details of the theories, which are themselves approximations. But uh, anyway, we're not going to talk about that, like the philosophy of science. But I just I just throw that out there as kind of a an analogy. And um, yeah, I don't except sciences, most science people, is most doing people it don't think it. of history as a science in this way, right?
2: Yeah, except science is At least my maybe it's. Maybe it's exactly the same thing. But whereas science is trying to do it to itself in the same ways that history tries to do it to itself, we try to figure out what the story is and then retell the story and make it better and whatever. Um, uh, But history's – I think history's primary target is all the other disciplines, political science and sociology and law and everyone who's emphasizing this connection. Everybody else is spending all their time looking for connections between the past and the present, looking for a portable theory. And historians are constantly trying to undermine it, Mm -hmm. I think.
1: So you're not not content to uh, cannibalize your your own. You have to go out and, and prey on other fields.
2: Well, his, yeah, historians feel they, they worry, right? Because uh, political scientists get all this, uh, and sociologists, right? They mm-hmm. get all this training and like how you build a model and how you do math and how you show causation and right, how, you know right. they, they have all these detailed tools. And like, what do we get trained to do? Like, we get trained to like read a lot of stuff and go into the archives. I mean, that you know, there's not a lot of that kind of technical training there's not a lot of math or tools or theory training Mm -hmm. and so historians to the extent that not all of them are uh too worried about this most of them just kind of do their job and they don't think about it but when you start thinking about it you start saying well what use are you what what are you doing that sociologists and political scientists aren't doing and my answer is we're undermining your theory. Well, We're not letting you get away with let's
1: it. Let's try this out now because I think specificity is very important. Yeah, and, right. And this so let's, very let's try it out with it. Yeah. Well, uh, and goodness knows I love abstraction, but I understand that that people, uh, most people don't, and they hate me for it. But um, so so let's let's try this out. So I'm going to give, with apologies to uh, Brian Leiter and to you, uh, not Brian Lighter, uh, um, uh, sorry. But anyway, let's just strike that if you want an example you want to do Lochner right Uh, here here's let me give you the sketch all right I'm going to give you my sketch and then you're going to tell me all the reasons I'm wrong can you do that
2: (laughs) uh, so let me in the beginning
0: why is this worthwhile
2: let me let me let me give you let me let me do the court packing plan as an example first
1: okay no 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 That's fine. I think I can
2: do a two-minute example of the court packing plan because most people know that, and then if then we can move on. No, and I'm going to cut in, out my I'm other stuff. I'm going to give you. I'm going to
1: give you 15 seconds of the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> you, let me try. Let Good me try. Lord. No, we'll cut all this out. We'll cut all, Don't worry. All right, you, i so have to start do, recording. Yet. You want to do Lochner and then you want to go back? No, no. Because it's all of a piece. I can do it all in 15 seconds. It is all no, a seamless weapon. Well,
2: no, there's a, there's a much...
1: Oh, I know that. See, you were already trying to criticize... I haven't even started no, no, talking long, yet, and yeah. you're criticizing my history. I know, but I'm history. not going to be able
2: to keep it all in my head all at
1: once. Oh, you will. You track. will, because there's almost nothing in mine. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. Are you ready? Are you ready? Don't, no, don't write anything down. You don't need to mm. write anything down. This is going to be so wrong, you're going right to be right in it. Okay, so uh, in the beginning, there were judges who thought of law as a big puzzle... And just put together puzzle pieces. And then a man named Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote an article saying that this is all about policy. Holmes and these puzzle-putting-together judges uh, fought for a while, at the same time that a progressive political movement was trying to make progress in industrial working conditions. For a long time, the puzzle-putter-togethers and believers in uh, laissez-faire economics were the winners, and... Uh, and they uh, struck down uh, um, uh, uh, laws affecting working conditions and and child labor and, and minimum wage and, and maximum working hours. They, they would strike these things down. And then one day, a man named Roosevelt finally uh, uh, was able to uh, uh, leverage um, political power to convince the court to change its mind. And then the court... Uh, um, went the other way and started approving of these uh, uh, interventions in the economy on the ground that, um, in fact, there's nothing natural about, the, uh, about a current economic order. Um, these things are political preferences, and they reveal that this apparent puzzle putting together had a uh, political backdrop to it. Okay, I, I, that's a dumb way of saying it, but... Uh, you let
0: out the fact that Harlan Fisk Stone kicked everyone's ass.
1: Yeah, I did. Leave. See, I, 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 Joe, Joe is that's a, that's the first historical revision to my
2: to my narrative. Joe is a political process person.
0: That and my dog is
1: named after Harlan
0: Stone, so I don't think it's fair not to mention him. But these puzzle putting gotcha. together
1: judges, these formalists and then uh, um, and and um, and believers in social Darwinism slash um, economic Darwinism um, through uh, um, parent. Formalist rhetoric hid the fact that there were economic and political preferences which backed up uh, powerful economic interests, et cetera. I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of trying to think of different ways to say that uh, um, that the courts uh, in these in in these times were kind of protective of the economic status quo.
2: Okay, that's right. Right? Can we end the show? Okay. So um, <laughs> there's. That's way too. That that's too rich for me to talk about all at once. And I want to. I I want to. I I, want to. I want to break it.
1: Yeah, you talk I, about one of the. You can see. Well, all I want you to do is maybe show me how even a single piece of that story is so much more complex than I made it sound, and what the historical method can do for us in filling out. Even, I'm giving you a whole bunch of hooks there. You just pick whichever one you want.
2: Okay, so I'm happy to talk about Lochner and what's going on there. Yeah, so what um, is Lochner? That's going to be a fun. That's a fun story. But I, I, the the easier way for people in the world to understand it, okay, going to be court packing. going to be the court plan. Okay, because right? everyone's familiar with that. That's, that's the end of my, my story. story. That's the right. end of my yeah, story. Right. Yeah, so okay. we'll, so we'll we'll kind of work. Back and we can talk about the implications. Awesome. This plugs into the implications of your your juris, jurisprudential claims are mostly focused on the New Deal Court. I think the political claims are mostly focused on Locke, but they're a little yeah, bit that's that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so yeah, there's the fairy tale. Uh, I mean, not necessarily wrong, but there's a, a moralistic fairy tale story about the court packing plan, which is these uh, evil. Uh, judges um, uh, didn't like the New Deal. Uh, didn't like the kind of uh, government regulation that was going on. So they strike it all. So they strike it all down. Then Franklin Roosevelt comes along. He threatens to pack the court. Um, the judges get concerned um, because they're going to be not replaced, but basically replaced. They're going to lose their authority. And so, in response to Franklin Roosevelt's um, uh, 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 pressure. They back down and approve the New Deal, yeah, and he couldn't force them to retire. But maybe he could just add more than
1: he could add more justices, and and therefore win that way. You know, you can go from nine to eleven, and two of them are now his, the two new ones are his, and suddenly we're going to have six to five decisions,
2: right? And they yeah. and they these judges see it, and so they change their attitude and approve all this stuff. So the important thing to see about this story for, or there's many important things, but one important thing, the part that lawyers get uh, most interested in, is this uh, makes. certain assumptions about the process of judging right built into this story is the idea that number one these judges didn't like the new deal for political reasons they thought it was bad policy they thought it was bad politics they opposed it right Um, and then they changed their mind as a result of political pressure from franklin roosevelt right so it's a story about political pressure on the court and judges acting in political ways and so what people lots of people thought and used this episode as evidence for is the jurisprudential point that's like if you want to know what supreme court and constitutional judging is about it's about politics right right how do we know that because we know this story of the supreme court and the historians and the journalists have told us that this is the story right so as people have
1: and this is the theoretical point of the legal realists that the movement we call legal realism is the one which reveals judicial decision making is not dictated by formal rules But by preferences like any other politics, but under another guise.
2: Right. And it's these things. Right. So the legal realists draw strength from this story about the court packing plan. If everyone believes that that's what happened with the court packing plan, when the realists make their theoretical arguments, it makes it look like it's true. Uh, And then when people have theoretical debates about what the law is doing moving forward, um, they're working within that framework. Right. Right. So they could all be wrong. But it could all be wrong, right? Uh, and it could you can argue against that theory on theoretical grounds, right? It doesn't stop you, but one of the things you're going to run into if you start saying, right, legal realism isn't right or isn't fully right, someone's going to say, but look at the New Deal court, right? right. Look at the New Deal court. This is in- incredibly clear. That's what happened then. It gives a lot of pressure pro the theoretical arguments of the legal realists.
0: But what, what I meant was the fact story could be wrong. I didn't mean the theory could be wrong. I meant the story about the facts could be wrong. Right. It I'm could taking be too that long. that's not why the majorities, <laughs> the, the, the pre 1937 majorities did what they did. It could also be the case that even if that were why they did what they did, they weren't responding to political pressure from the president. So bo- one or both of those
2: suppositions could be incorrect, factually incorrect. That's the
0: only point I was trying to make.
2: No, and, and you're right. And I was getting there, right? So that's the job of the historian. Right. I think, you know, I mean, maybe you're, you're, you're yeah. Um, you think you you've read Barry Cushman's book too. Have, and you, you know, I the story, and we, it both, we both, we I, both, I think Barry is uh, at least mostly like 90% right. And I think you agree with me. But anyway, so Barry yes. Cushman, we'll link that you up know, in, the show notes. in a, in a huge book in 1996, um, I think uh, comes out and he says, wait a minute, this whole story is, doesn't look like it's actually right. Right. I mean, he's not doing he's not a theorist. He's not involved in theoretical debates, but he's just saying, well, let's just go back and look at this. Um, Let's just go back and look at what happened here. And he points out some factual things that kind of weaken this story. Um, Among them um, is that it looked like no one was really afraid of the court packing plan because no one really thought it was actually going to pass. Um, And maybe even more importantly, one of the cases in which. Um, I think it was West Coast Hotel, but I'm not sure. Yeah. One of the cases in which the Supreme Court is, uh, had been for a long time supposed to have uh, given in to political pressure, that the actual— uh, This is a minimum uh, the,
1: wage case, right?
2: Yeah, the yeah. actual vote uh, had occurred before the court packing plan had announced. In other words, the court had switched positions— before the court packing plan was ever announced, so if your theory is the court packing plan caused the court to change its mind, you suddenly you have got machine. a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, right,
0: you need to include a time machine in your theory
1: now. Right, which or show through. that there's some way that information about that plan got to the court, or you need, you know, the point is you've got to go through a bunch of archives and find evidence. And was his main data was it, were his data the uh, files in the Supreme Court? The justices' uh, letters and things?
2: Uh, it was the justices. I mean, he looked. Uh, so this is the uh, destructive part of his thesis is saying that the that this court packing plan isn't right. And his sources there are all kinds of secondary sources as right, well as the right. letters of uh, Franklin Roosevelt looking at the justices. I mean, right. I will say I, I don't think that. I don't. OK, so. I may get in trouble putting this out there. I don't think any practicing historian who's looked at the New Deal think that the court packing plan caused the justices to change their mind for this reason. I don't think, I think zero historians think that. Wow. Yeah. So what lots of historians still think is that the uh, election results coming into the 19, uh, coming into the uh, election and the larger kind of political pressures of the time may have influenced them. So this is like writing, writing on the
1: wall stuff.
2: Yeah. The country was heading this direction or maybe, and maybe the judges, uh, were kind of beginning to believe that this was the right direction to, uh, to, to move. I'm not saying that the political explanation for what happened is still alive, but nobody thinks it's the court backing, uh, plan anymore.
1: Well, and this is consistent with the fact that, you know, uh, after the great depression happens, right. Um, uh, or or begins, a lot of people change their mind about the merits of federal power about the uh, appropriateness of intervention in markets. Um, So it stands to reason that judges might be the same. Uh, We certainly, in our own time, and, you know, I I hate to warp into the present and try to draw lessons, from, but I'm I'm trying to draw a lesson backwards (laughs) a little bit right here, right? So, you know, Alan Greenspan has famously said that he was wrong about the economy, and, you know, I didn't... I don't even remember all the details about what he says, right? But a lot of people change their mind in the face of empirical data. And that's a wonderful thing about human beings, right? I mean, that we are not ideologically rigid.
2: Yeah. Well, I agree with that. Um... But so here's. The, but as far as what we're talking, as far as like what's in, uh, the, at least the the example I'm trying to give of why it matters to historians is Cushman starts out by criticizing this political explanation, and once he says, "Well, this political explanation, you know, where we assume judges are making political decisions under political pressure," if that doesn't look entirely convincing, um, how do we explain what's going on? And he yeah. has this remarkably. Uh, uh, It's complicated. Um, It's a complicated story. Uh, You got to get way into the weeds of the doctrine. But he says, look, there was a doctrinal transformation going on that started not in 1937, but in 1934 right? Uh, this uh, uh, complicated uh, and integrated doctrinal structure that was associated with Lochner um, uh, was starting to come unraveled in 1934. And it's the unraveling of that doctrine, right? As that doctrine uh, starts to collapse, judges start saying, well, if that's no longer right, we need a new structure. And that happened to be going on at the exact same time that the New Deal was going on, right? Uh, and so it looks like it was political pressure. So just an
1: example like where, the, you know, if you study the history of the Commerce Clause, and not history history but if you just read the commerce clause cases through history one lesson is that the justices are trying to draw lines and every doctrinal fix that you know whether it's the direct indirect distinction whether it's the uh um what uh um uh, uh i forget all the distinctions they made it's been a yeah. while now but it's you know they tons make a, of them right they make a ton of them and and they're always in search Manus of a new line and, and they commerce, don't yeah. they don't there there doesn't seem to be an internal consistency there's not a way of holding that line because you know new cases come out and they challenge your intuition because it's almost like as people we have an intuition about what the line should be and that intuition probably is very time and place dependent uh Um, it it depends on all the cases you've seen before and the great depression is a huge data point, which I imagine has to like shake loose certain, um, certain moorings you might have in a certain way of thinking about the doctrine. And suddenly when you're choosing how to evolve it, you see different possibilities. I don't know if that makes sense or if it's consistent with the actual history here, but it certainly seems like a non-cynical explanation of how one might change one's views, um about in terms of evolving it or maybe even changing one's mind entirely.
2: Yeah, so I don't want to lose track of the uh uh I don't want to lose track of the main point here, but I want to I, I keep, but I want to I come back to, to that, you. right? Keep, no, so um so if you think Barry's right about what happened in the new deal that in fact the change an important part of the change was this collapsing doctrinal structure, yeah. then suddenly it looks then if you're arguing a, that if you're a theorist arguing against the legal realists and the legal realists say, yeah, but look at the new deal court, what happened there now, suddenly with Barry's work out there, you can say, well, now I'm not so sure that supports your view anymore, right? There's this other story that maybe looks more right. So suddenly now, like as a theorist, you've got a greater space to have a debate about exactly what's going on. So right?
0: You're not, you're not just stuck with law is politics as my only option it's now well that may be part of what's happening another part of what's happening is law is uh interconnected concepts and that people actually care about the practitioners in this thing called law actually care about the coherence and interwoven woven nature of the concepts they are using another way right? of
1: asking that would be what are the constraints on judges in deciding cases and the 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 hyper-legal realist view is uh, that there are none, right? Or uh, that there's naked preference. And I don't think anybody ever had quite that extreme of view. And the, 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 also the hyper-formalist view, which I also don't think anyone really had in mind, is that the constraints are total, you know that judges are basically computational machines. The conceptual and r- and what the so- story shows is that if, if your theory had been well, it's pretty close to the politics end of it, and you can see that by how doctrine seems to follow the political winds. And here is this key historical example, and now we get a a better story, right? A better history of what occurred. Now you think, well, maybe that that the change that occurred there is consistent with a um, modicum of constraints story of. The evolution of law, right? Conceptual uh, constraints. Exactly, right. Uh, um, And maybe that creates more space because it used to be very hard to argue that at least politics uh, did not dictate um, uh, law. And now you can say, well, maybe they don't totally, you know, maybe, uh, and and then you can start to argue about what those constraints are, and we can have better histories telling us at least how it has happened in the past. And the lesson is not that we should necessarily do it exactly like they did in the past. But if we're thinking about how to design the institution for the future, the past will tell us like when it's gone badly, when it's gone well, what kinds of rules have seemed to work, what kinds of, uh, uh, um, when things seem to go haywire, uh, all those are lessons from the
2: past, right? Yeah. I, I I, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, all this is right. Yeah excellent okay so we can, we're done no uh, uh no. Th- so my last thing is, you know yeah. you can caricature cushman as being a hyper formalist but if you look at his book it's very clear that he's not right there are changing social and economic circumstances that lead these judges to look at a doctrine that 50 years ago seemed entirely convincing and they start to say well this structure doesn't quite hold together anymore right uh, uh so we need to make adjustments here and adjustments there um his story isn't hyper uh, formalism um, but it is a story in which the structure of doctrine and the way judges think about it has powerful influences on their behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I think that that opens up different possibilities and for arguments about theory and different possibilities uh, about whether or not we should allow judges to, you know, the whole argument about whether or not, judges should have the authority they do under our constitution and under our p- current political system is a lot of, uh, is influenced heavily by whether or not you think they're just being politicians or they're not.
1: Right. And, right. And whether you're comfortable with those various roles. So what roles do you think judges have been playing in the past? What role do you think they should play? And then by what rules are you going to get them to change from what you think they're doing now to what you think they should be doing? These are your hard questions. And capabilities
0: too. Like if, it, if, if you don't believe in your heart of hearts that, the internal point of view of a given sort of set of practices is a meaningful way to talk. Like people can't actually have, people can't possibly care about concepts and how they fit together. So given that that's true, if you thought that I don't, but if you did, um, well then it makes no sense to spend a lot of time trying to f- worry about <laughs> concepts and how they fit together. you pay attention to a bunch of other things. So it, it affects how you go about whether, Whether you've got a new project you want to create or whether you're trying to uh, understand better why the thing that's happening right in front of you is going on, it just affects your, your outlook kind of across the board, your beliefs about what people are capable of.
1: Can we go back to Lochner? If you must. Well, I mean uh well, a lot of people do want to go back to Lochner, but um can and we go some back of to the in, are in and, this room right can we go back to the uh, discussion <laughs> uh no so so Lochner is the um you know uh well, I don't know why don't we get you know you're, you're better at this stuff you, you, you Do you want to tell us what Lochner was about uh,
2: didn't we do this? Already? Let me do the I can do it in a more abstract well i mean. No, I think yeah. Why do you just, want to talk about well,
1: it? Well, so the, you know, the case involved uh, setting the working hours of bakers, right? There was a statute which wanted to set the uh, maximum hours that a, a baker could work for various kind of labor uh, reasons, and um, and 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 this, and this gets up to the Supreme Court because this is challenged by, um, I guess, the owners of a, of a particular bakery, but probably by the whole industry on on grounds. Uh, which grounds was this case? This was uh, um, freedom of contract, right? Um, the
0: due process was the. Oh, was it due the process? Rubric was it? Yeah, I
1: see. I always forget this, and and I know yeah, it drives people who work in the area. Freedom nuts. of contract
0: is a due process theory,
1: right? That that's yeah. There there is a kind of a freedom of contract in the Constitution, and it's often confused with the kind of freedom of contract which the court said is protected through due process. Uh, but we don't need to get into the weeds on that. Uh, but I think this was a substantive due process case. Um, That's what I meant. Which protects the freedom of process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. I'm I'm saying that you're right. And and, uh, the due
2: process clause and no state shall deprive any uh, person of of due uh, of uh, life, liberty, liberty, or property property. without due process. And this is and the judges said, well, one part of one's liberty protected by that clause in the Fourteenth Amendment is your liberty to contract. Right. And so
1: this is this is my freedom to enter contracts, uh, labor contracts, giving away uh, or, or selling my labor for however many hours a week and whatever kind of job I want to have for whatever amount of money I want. And any governmental interference with that is necessarily an intrusion into one's liberty to contract. And the argument on the other side is that you know um, selling one's labor for. You know, pennies for 100 hour work weeks is not liberty, but, um, but, uh, uh but at this right. time that this was still contested, um, you know, right. w- and what the-, the natural baseline was. And so what the judges came out with in this uh, famous case of Lochner was that indeed this dis- in- did interfere with the liberty of, of contract protected by the due process clause. And Holmes has a famous, uh, dissent. Um, in which he says the Constitution does not enshrine a particular theory of economics. It doesn't enshrine laissez-faire, kind of social Darwinist understandings of the economic order. And we should defer to legislatures. This is a legislative judgment about what baselines are appropriate and about how economics work and how best to protect individual liberties. Um, judges are not the best institution to do this. And so the the case, and, and I'm giving this, and I'm as not a historian, just someone who's a, Student of the case law uh, is often held up as as uh, a very 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 bad moment for the court in which it kind of oversteps its bounds and dictates a certain economic policy binding the legislature not to pass you know le- uh, certain kinds of labor protections not to uh, be involved in in uh, setting basic economic rules because the court has already done it and taken that out of the legislative realm. Um, I don't know. Is that? Do you want to add anything to that, Logan? Did I get it basically right? Yeah. So, if we have time, and then you can edit all
2: this out later. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me let me blow it up bigger. Right. So uh, this is all about the. Well, it's not all about. One of the really important implications about this is the um, uh, legitimacy of government regulation of different parts of the economy. Right. Right. In the late 19th century. Well, so. Starting, say, in the 1930s, around the time of the New Deal, not an accident. Uh, History affects historians, too. Um, uh, People start looking back at the court in the late 19th century, um, uh, in the early 20th century, and they see a couple of things. They see Lochner, right? Uh, They see Lochner, where the court is saying freedom of contract means that individuals have the right to make their contracts, which means Wage regulation by the government um, is inappropriate. Uh, Then they look around and they say, you have this distinction between businesses affected with the public interest where you can regulate rates and businesses not affected with the public interest where you cannot regulate their rates. And these people said, you look around, and it sure seems like the court has a pretty narrow vision of what businesses are affected by the public interest, which is effectively like stopping all this uh, rate regulation. Right At the same time, the Supreme Court... Uh, seems to be with its commerce clause jurisprudence right with its federalism jurisprudence right saying things like uh You can't have antitrust laws um, uh, that uh, govern manufacturers because that's manufacturing and not commerce. At the same time, they're also using that same doctrine to reach out and strike down these state regulations of business, right? And they're striking down state regulation of business saying the states can't regulate that. Only the federal government can regulate that. And what they look out is they say, man, this is a whole lot of the Supreme Court striking down economic regulation. And they start saying, well, why? Why are they doing that, mm-hmm. right? So here's a jurisprudential story that's just like the New Deal court. It says, it says, the first set of explanations is, I'll tell you why they're doing it, because they like business people, right? They like right. big business. They're on their side. Why do they like them? A variety of different Naked reasons. Naked political preference. But yeah. one of them is, these are the guys they're hanging out at the country club with. These are the guys <laughs> they went to school with. They're yeah. sympathetic with them. They're not it's their sympathetic own social with, class. Exactly. So it's a class argument. And then people come along and they say, well, maybe that's right, but maybe there's also another story. Maybe it's more intellectual and less class based. What they are is they're social Darwinists. They believe in uh, survival of the fittest. Uh, They follow Herbert Spencer, and that's why they're doing this, right? Right. They don't like government regulation, so, right? Uh, This is
1: Holmes' view in dissent, right? This
2: is Holmes' view in dissent. And so that's the story for a long time. Um, and now recently there's kind of been revisionism that's taking That's had a couple of different strands. Um, but it looks back and it says, well, let's, you know, the, the first wave of revisionism says, well, let's look at this story, right? So you see all these examples of government regulation. You say they hate regulation. They're just striking everything down. But what I can show you is a whole bunch of regulations that they upheld, right? Looking back, one of the, uh, things that I talk about uh um uh charles warren uh, actually wrote this in the 1920s he says if you look back at these supreme court cases uh, there's lochner and there's other cases like that yeah i'm gonna get the numbers wrong but he said he you know counted them up and he said i see something like 500 cases where economic regulations were challenged on fr- freedom of contract ga- grounds and i see three where they were struck down wow right uh and then other people looked at some of these federalism cases and and anyway. We can go into detail. They they start raising <laughs> yeah, questions be curious about, about each what's one of distinctive
1: these. about Lockner. Uh, it's um, like why strike that one down? What is it about?
2: Let me come back to that. Yeah, okay. So so they come up with they come up with some new explanations. Right? They come up with uh, these guys are not necessarily driven by uh, class bias, and there's you know one of the things they point out is the only one of these guys who. Actually seemed to agree with the ideas that Herbert Spencer and the social Darwinists were advancing is ironically Holmes. The rest <laughs> of these guys, if you look at their papers, right. they're, I mean, they just were not social Darwinists. So, uh, they come up with these new explanations which focus on, uh, um, The idea that these guys, what they're worried about is uh, this kind of old Jacksonian understanding of what it takes to be an American, like what the kind of central uh, 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 characteristic of American and American freedom is. And it's the ability to enter any profession on equal terms with anyone else.
1: So it's kind of autonomous, it's like classless autonomy um New world thinking like you 're not born into a social class and you ought to be able to the the latter can't be there to
2: climb yeah, what up, but- we hate what we hate as a Jacksonian is special privileges for some people, especially right. the well connected right? right what we don't want is uh, someone who is um, well connected to be able to go to the legislature and get the legislature to pass I mean, Get the legislature to pass a rule, right, that specially favors this guy. Maybe this guy being the one person who can have a certain kind of corporation. Right. This guy, right, so they they carve off this area for them, right? So this kind of Jacksonian, 1840s, 1830s kind of philosophy starts saying, well, what we need is a system that treats all Americans equally, right, so that they can compete equally. And this kind of ideology gets – continues on well uh through the um it makes uh, you skeptical
0: makes you skeptical of legislative power in a in a way if you're if you're on the lookout for these sorts of special privileges problems in the same way maybe that's the same in, in an analogically similar way that um you have 17th century british parliament being skeptical of the monarch's power to extend special privileges producing the statute of monopolies Sort of anti special privilege legislation. You've got things flip, and now you've got people worried about legislative power. That's a mechanism for handing out special privileges. So be on the lookout for
1: that problem. Right, but that just sounds like a brand of of, of uh, old fashioned and new fashioned libertarianism, like a like a belief that in general, why do you in- say just? That just sounds well, be- because it doesn't distinguish Lochner from the many cases that Logan just told us were uh, upheld or that the revisionists say were up- of economic regulation that were upheld. Right. I mean, what is if it's just libertarianism, then you're distrustful of a lot of government regulation. And I'm wondering what's dis you know, if the, if the story is that they didn't strike down all the stuff left and right, what's distinctive about the stuff they did strike down? And can we gather from that any kind of coherent theory about the line between you're laughing what okay
2: let me be a historian now right Uh, as you try to gather a coherent theory about what this says about libertarianism and so they they weren't libertarians right there's no way they were libertarians this particular concern that they can be traced back i mean um can be traced back to james madison not that madison thought exactly these things but this kind of jacksonian principle of neutrality was there when the nation was founded right james madison uh worried about it jackson worried about it right and these guys were not libertarians right we're not talking about liber- modern libertarianism, uh, and modern libertarianism has lots of different um, um, characteristics, and yeah, many see, of them were not shared by these guys. You see at all. why
1: I'm asking though, because uh, I'm looking for a principle to, to the extent where that what what most interested them was a was a neutrality principle, and they were offended when government appeared to come in and 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 take sides. Uh, um, and, and on behalf of special interests, it's almost like a proto public choice kind of theory uh, of, yeah. of of judicial intervention. Um, I, I'm still struggling to see how that explains a case like Lochner. Well, so unless you think there are strong labor unions, I don't know what
2: what, no, what it would so be. So that that is the explanation. I mean, oh. in some ways, but. Um, the theoretical explanation is judges thought that there were some laws that advanced, quote, police power purposes. They advanced the general welfare, the health or the morality or the, you know, the, the operation of society as a whole. They were genuinely public, uh, uh, public regarding legislation. Um, and some were not. And they looked at Lochner uh, and five of them thought that this was not public regarding legislation. This was um, uh, um this was problematic because it wasn't public regarding. We can get into what they thought exactly. So well, five of them thought that three of them thought this was public regarding legislation. It was actually an exercise of the police power. And then there's Holmes way over on the side saying, I don't know why we're having this discussion. Uh, this whole doctrinal system that you've set up is so." Can is I just, just to
0: be, just to put some markers down. So it sounds like therefore you would say um, that they were, uh, they, appear to believe on this story, they appear to believe uh, that there is uh, a meaningful distinction to be made in legislation between that which is public regarding and that which is not in this pernicious way, that extends special privileges to the well-connected. Right? They believe that that's a difference, and they believe they're well positioned to detect it, right? And finally, that w- having detected it, they're obliged to act on what they've just discovered. In the name of due process.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And so coming back to Christians, I mean, so, you know, the history on this is, rego- is growing, and it's unsurprisingly coming—well, we can get into that. It's unsurprisingly coming from—well, it's coming from many different places, from many different political perspectives, um, but some of the work on this is also coming from libertarians, right. modern libertarians, but— Far from all of it, in fact, most of it's not, yeah, but the story behind some of the headlining Lochner,
1: stuff is like a, a, is the libertarian revisionist uh history of Lochner without without putting any kind of smear on it just that that there's a reason libertarians are really interested in it, and that seems to be grabbing a lot of the the headlines about um yeah about that's, Lochner these days that's
2: but. right the story I've just told you though dates back to the seventies yeah, it's been going on since the seventies yeah. the libertarians are pretty putting a different spin on it. They're, they're in some ways, they're agreeing with this approach, but putting a slightly different spin on it. Um, but one of the one of these guys, I, I think he'd be more than happy to be called a libertarian, is David Bernstein. And yeah. one of the things he's pointed out, or at least he argues, that in fact, the judges in Lochner who were in the majority and thought that this was not public regarding legislation were exactly right. The public, the, the story that we've been telling, that, that old story says about Lochner is Bakers were being taken advantage of and what we needed or what they needed was the government to step in and protect them with these uh, hours laws. It was public regarding legislation. You're worried about these workers, right? Um, that's the kind of the, the, the story of the politics behind it. David argues, and I think uh, other people believe That what was going on was not that at all, that in fact, there were these small immigrant bakers, uh, small immigrant bakeries uh, who were working hard and were working uh, long hours and were making money and capturing larger market share. And then there were uh, larger established native bakers. Uh, who didn't want to work that long had uh, uh, long hours and that they went to their allies on the legislature and said, we want you to force everyone to work no more hours than we're working. Um, and the law in Lochner was a result. So it was protectionist.
1: The, the law was protectionist of incumbent bakers. And, and this is a, 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 a kind of typical failure of the legislature because it yielded to a special interest against the public interest if you think the public interest isn't producing a competitive market in baking well, look, and therefore the court steps in. That's a story But there's a third it, right?
0: story, which is even a broken watch is right twice a day, right? So even though sure. the person who comes and brings this to your attention is the incumbent baker, it doesn't mean it's wrong that it's a more humane reality for people to not be working a- umpty-ump hundred hours a day.
1: Well, what's more, the explanation that they give is not that, right? If you read Lochner, that is
2: not the explanation that they give. That's right. But that's, I mean, that's right. They have this, What I mean, and, and then, you know, query whether or not they're actually thinking this way uh, or right. this is just cover for it. But the argument is that this kind of, this political concern, this Jacksonian political concern for equal treatment Right, uh, made the doctrine that they had developed seem reasonable, and yeah. they were then not applying the principle they had developed over, you know, a period of time. I mean, there's arguments about exactly how far back this Lochner doctrine goes, but they were they were not asking what was the legislature doing. They were asking, is this a exercise of the police power? Does this right. look to us like it's advancing the health and welfare of of the of the community? Or does it look like it's not? Because if it's not, then we're going to strike it down. Well, we no had, we had
1: Sarah Schindler on last week. Um, she's now a friend of the show. Sarah Schindler was on last week. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, after Paul Heald and Tim Meyer and Sonia West. Yeah. Um, listen to them all. Collect them all. Go back and download them all. Um, but uh, one thing we talked about with Sarah was Euclid. Um, the Euclid case upholding uh, zoning, which was is... is uh, as I tell my land use classes it 's just an unbelievably intrusive regulatory scheme if you you know if it didn 't exist and all of a sudden it 's dropped from the heavens onto a small community i mean it 's hard to imagine a more intrusive regime than one which says by law, here are the list of things you can do on your property, and here are the list of things you cannot do and Justice Sutherland writes the opinion um upholding this like a, a, an extremely intrusive regulatory scheme on grounds that, well, the Constitution has kind of fixed words, but its meaning changes over time as the needs of society change. Like people are living closer together in urban areas, there are fires, there are more problems, uh, and and needful regulation. The, the notion of that changes as society changes. And uh, and in particular, there have been a board of experts, these planners uh, 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 in a national organization who have told us that this is a a really good way to solve this problem. And everybody knows that uh, when apartments, for example, move into a uh, a nice neighborhood uh they like parasites start to um invade and destroy quality of life, et cetera et cetera <laughs> and so um in other words this is a classic police power regulation it's aiming at a problem which didn't exist a uh, hundred years ago which which but which exists in um in large amount now um so that would con i guess it's the story you tell about Lochner is more consistent with understanding how a judge could disapprove. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> was it eighty hours? Was the it was it was a pretty length. You know, it was, it was a lot of hours. It was a lot of hours that that um, that the statute allowed, but they disapprove that as inconsistent with the freedom of contract, and yet approve of zoning. Uh, um, it, it's a really difficult thing to understand on the opinion's own terms. But you tell a story which is um, well. This isn't.
2: I mean, this isn't entirely my story, and I don't. Want no, to no, admit, I don't mean but, to say that. But, but you're, you're on, on to this, us this story, story. which yeah. I think has a lot of truth of it. I mean, I, I will say, you, I didn't remember Euclid exactly, but when you start describing it, I'm, I'm totally unsurprised yeah. that these that many of these judges would have approved that, right? And
1: yeah, but see, here's what I would say, and. and Here's what I would say about that. I totally understand the idea that what they were really doing was that they had a conception of the police power and that they were aiming at laws which, in fact, didn't advance the public interest through the police power, but maybe did other what they considered to be illegitimate things, right? And that sorts the protectionist measure that they thought was really at work in, in Lochner from the publicly minded zoning that they saw in Euclid and maybe some other some other cases. But I so, and and. It's the to for me the the lesson about Lochner is not that there were good people and evil people, right It's not that there were good judges and then like evil judges who were like in bed with the corporations or anything it It shows the danger of courts as institutions uh developing strong senses of baseline entitlements that they alone could police like so having a having a fixed conception of what the police power should be rather than yielding a lot of deference to the legislature effectively regulates the economy, right? Um, This is what's involved in the lead up to the new deal. It's like giving up on the idea that you alone know the proper balance between federal and state um, uh, regulation of the economy, or that you alone know the natural state of mankind when it comes to bargaining and therefore can police the boundaries between freedom of contract and uh, and, and freedom to be free, uh, you know, or, or freedom from uh, being taken advantage of, like um, what changed with the New Deal and, and, you know, with the Commerce Clause, it was wicked And with the freedom of contract, I guess it was West Coast Hotel. Um, but what changed with, with, with these cases was the court was saying, you know what, we, this is for Congress to decide. This is for the people to decide what these baselines are. And these things can change. And that's, that's a sense in which the court gives up on a certain kind of conservatism. Um, and, and I think to their credit, right. I just don't think the courts were great institutions for, uh, policing because it's very hard to get them out of it. All kinds of reasons I don't want to go into, but, um, or that I can't go into without thinking about it more really, for to be honest. I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Or am I not making any sense? Cause we're almost out of time. So I'm, <laughs> and I can cut all that. I'm
2: not out. a constitutional theorist, so I'm not comfortable talking about that <laughs> off the cuff. Yeah. Um, but here's what I would say, is that your argument is easier to make if, the, if our historical memory of Lochner, of judges aggressively you know, using their authority to um, strike down economic regulations, your argument is easier to make if everyone thinks that those judges were doing it because they were jerks, right? Well, I, uh, But I'm
1: not saying that, though. I, right? and
2: I know you're not. So yeah. this, isn't, this isn't about you. Yeah, I'm yeah. kind of using this as no, an example. Right? it's all about me. Right? All, um, no. So <laughs> the, that argument is easier to make. If people think Lochner was driven by the political uh, opposition of judges to workers, right? That's so the best. Explanation for that is they hated workers. That's a bad attitude Lochner's wrong Therefore that makes your theory not in a logical way, but in kind of like an associational way your theory looks better If however the story and Lochner is the one David Bernstein tells where what judges were doing at that point was actually helping people by uh, eliminating this kind of uh, uh, Special privileges for politically connected people then your theory which may st- still totally be right is in some ways kind contradicted by Lochner and so what the historian's job is and what I would kind of I mean professionally how I would want to engage with your theory is not to tell you whether or not your theory is right or wrong or whether or not uh, you're right or wrong for as we move forward what I would want to do is make sure that when you start using historical examples you're using them accurately and in order to do that I in fact kind of psychologically ought to well I, I try to and I think all historians ought to try to and probably do disassociate the historical questions they're asking from the theoretical outcomes. I just want to make sure that you get the story of Lochner, right? Right. If you're going to use it for evidence one way or the other, which I'm not saying you personally are, but that's the historian's job. And if I can do that, then I'm satisfied with what I do. I don't see how we're going to improve on that. Agreed. I will say this, this let me, I don't know if this is relevant or not. Yeah. There's something about personality in it, right? Um, I'm kind of uncomfortable making judgments about things. Right, uh, I'm right. much more comfortable trying to understand many people's point of view and how why they think what they do, and um, uh, than I am saying you're wrong and you're wrong and this is the right answer. You probably have the sense in this when I'm talking. Like I'm just not very comfortable with that. I, is I, that
1: why you made Cs in law school? <laughs> <Is>
2: that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, but that's why I want to be a historian. <laughs> no, I made no Cs in law school. That right? is, that, I'm just much more comfortable being trying to understand than I am making judgments and I, I can use that preference to make a contribution to the uh, legal academy. But that
1: is the best. I mean, that is what we, you know, that's also, uh, I, I think that's a good thing to aspire to, right? That, 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 and that when, when it comes to our analytical minds, what we should be aspiring to do is making connections between things, connections between attitudes, connections between historical events and the, uh, the outcomes produced by those events. Um, conclusions about what we should do inevitably involves another layer. It involves valuation of things, um, or ascribing motives in, uh, in, in the face of the unknowable, you know, when, when history runs out and all we have to do is guess at why someone did what they did. And that's both of those things are maybe sometimes necessary, but fraught with all kinds of peril to the extent that your role as professional historian or as professional, even theorist, um, Cloaks those those uh, those those endeavors in apparent authority when in fact there is none. Uh, the 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 analytical historical evidence has run out and you've made a judgment. So I, I think that's a that's a long way of saying that I think your reticence to pronounce judgment is is uh, is is laudable here.
2: Well, it takes all kinds. I mean, <laughs> you know, we need people who feel incredibly strongly about issues to campaign for them and push them forward and. Um, and we need people who think the other things so they can argue with each other and we can mm-hmm. sort things out on a theoretical level. And I'm, I'm grateful that not everyone is, <laughs> is just like me, as I'm sure I feel many very strongly, other people are also. <laughs> I, feel, I, I,
1: I feel very strongly that Logan is our nation's best historian. Cool. Period. So there we go.